Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. Liberal democracy feels in a precarious state. Populism is on the rise. But how much of that is to do with public speaking? Who are the great progressive orators of our time? And what is it that makes a speech any good? I'm Connor Pope, Deputy Editor of Progress, and with Progress Director Richard Angel. And we're joined by Philip Collins, former speechwriter to Tony Blair, and author of the recent book, When They Go Low, We Go High, Speeches That Shape the World, to discuss whether public speech is a lost art and whether we have lost our politics because of it. Philip, what first piqued your interest in oratory as a form? It was actually the first great speech I saw live. I wasn't in the hall, but I was watching on television. But Neil Kinnock piqued my interest because he was so wonderful at it. He was the first great political speaker I ever saw. I mean, people who are older than me go back to Nye Bevan and others and say that, and Lloyd George, my grandfather used to talk about. But Kinnock was the entry point for me because that battle in to secure the Labour Party against Militant, where Kinnock put that into such beautiful words i could feel the passion and the and the anger and the commitment and also the eloquence i mean kenneth was a wonderful writer and a really fine speaker he had a wonderful voice but he also had something to say mm. it mattered now in the history of the world i suppose winning the labor party back isn't necessarily one of the great battles but i've included a neil kinnock speech in the book alongside much more famous speeches precisely because i felt that he did express something that mattered a great deal to me he put into words the dream of social mobility and meritocracy that great speech that joe biden then plagiarized <laughs> why am i the first kinnock in a thousand generations and i think he found so that speech was just before the 87 election wasn't it? i think it, it was turned into a political broadcast it was hugh hudson did a sort of famous political broadcast with it it was a the uh, i was in Clandudno, the the welsh labor conference mm. kinnock just wrote a few scraps on bits of paper and then improvised the speech. Quite a lot of the speech isn't all that good. It's, it meanders a bit. And the attacks on the Tories are overwrought and overdone. But he then hits this complete gold dust with this idea of the Kinnocks. And he, go, he talks about his family and the brilliance of it, which I think is a, a lesson for all good speeches. There's no pity in the speech at all. These are not beleaguered people, the Kinnocks. Mm. On the contrary, they are you know, creative, full of capacity, full of uh, hard work. And his question at the end is why these people who are so good so hard working so talented why could they not get on further 
It's a very effective way of putting the left-wing question, which mm -hmm. is you need government action to help people. And he'd done that in over 20 minutes in the, in the speech before, and it was all abstract and not very persuasive. And suddenly, these people arrived in the speech, and it completely lived. And the, the point was made eloquently and brilliantly. And I, I love that speech. I, I still think it's a classic. It is. In fact, my favorite Neil Kinnock speech as well, although obviously the 85 one seems to have captured the kind of mythos of uh, the Labour Party in the 1980s much better. But I think what it does so well is it explains the story of the Labour Party, I think. Because what he's saying is that actually previous generations, were they not clever enough? Were they not strong enough? Were they not creative enough? And obviously they were. It's, it's his answer at the end, they did not have the platform. And actually, if you follow the story of so many people like that, who now are kind of, you know, comfortably well off, it actually is the story of the Labour Party helping them. Well, there's the operative word, the story. Because in lots of political speeches, there's no story. There's simply arguments mm -hmm. and numbers and illustrations. Particularly when you're in government, you, and I, I plead guilty to doing this myself, you write lots of speeches about policy and about achievements, and you have to because no one else will advertise what you've done if you don't. Mm. So I don't regret doing them, but they're very difficult to make those things vivid. Whereas if you can tell a story of your purpose, that is real fantastic gold dust. One of the things that we've not done in the last 10 years or so, perhaps more, in the Labour Party, on the side of the party I was on, is not really told a very compelling story. And Kinnock was a master of that. It also shows the limitations of rhetoric. I mean, I say this in the book, that Kinnock, of course, never became Prime Minister. So you can be the most effective orator of your time. Mm. And it doesn't necessarily mean that's enough. You need more than that. It wasn't enough to give him ultimate credibility as a potential Prime Minister. Richard, have you had any kind of similar speeches that inspired you in that kind of way? My favourite speech ever to witness was when Bill Clinton spoke at Labour Party conference, partly because he introduced himself as Bill Clinton, Arkansas CLP. And what was amazing about it was it just the whole room swooned. You just felt like everyone kind of fell in love with him. And whatever your view on him or whatever wing of the Labour Party you were on, is we were all on the same side from that minute and that minute on. He also said in the speech something that which just stayed with me remarkably. And it was... I think it was 2006, so George Bush was obviously in the White House. The Iraq war was happening, and of course Blair had supported it. But he said in a kind of retort to George Bush that America should be about the power of our example, not the example of our power. For some reason, I just remember him saying those words and how magnificent they were and the real weight that those what eight words had and just really made me think about you know, that position and what it meant and why somebody who could essentially have exactly the same politics as Tony Blair came to that conclusion you know, in a different way. And I thought that was really interesting. Clinton is a, a shameless flatterer of audiences and he's brilliant <laughs> at getting everyone together. That theme is very interestingly runs all through American presidential rhetoric about the example of America in the world. Jefferson begins that and Kennedy did lots of that too. And it's very powerful, I agree. It's, and it's really nicely put. But Clinton is a very interesting example in rhetoric. I don't have a Clinton speech in the book and I thought hard about doing so. And in the end, I couldn't find one that was good enough. Really? And the reason for that, I think, is not because Clinton is not a great speaker. He's a very fine speaker. Mm. It's because the Times didn't contain a great big event for Clinton. If Clinton had been in situ at 9-11, I'm sure there'd be a Clinton speech in this book. But the Clinton years were years of prosperity mm. and some welfare reform. And it's very difficult to do a great deal as an American president at home. But there wasn't a great moment abroad. Maybe if Clinton had acted more rapidly in Rwanda or Kosovo. Maybe he'd have yeah. made a great speech, but I don't think he made a durably great speech. 
Um, I think Clinton was incredibly eloquent, but in the end didn't have a great deal to say. I remember when I um, first started working at Labourlist back in 2014, and I randomly came across a book of 20th century speeches. I think it was the Penguin Book of 20th century speeches, something like that. There was a Keir Hardy speech in which is quite famous, The Sunshine of Socialism. But I realised that, as I was reading it, that it was coming up to exactly the centenary since he gave that speech. And I couldn't find it anywhere online. So I dutifully kind of typed it all out and... Um, posted it up on Labourlist, and it didn't... The, the odd thing that people who work for Progress will do <laughs> of an evening. But it, but it did in, incredibly well. And, you know, Keir Hardy was... Um, he was someone who really understood the power of, of oratory, actually. But also, he had something to say, didn't he? Because there you are, mm. the start of a, of a new entity where the electorate is changing, you know, the franchise is, is shifting, and working people are finding their own vehicle. And th this is a big subject. And so uh, very good words at that moment have, have got every good chance of being... Uh, lasting in the anthologies. That's a crucial thing, I think, that if you're, you can speak incredibly well and eloquently and powerfully, but if your issue isn't firstly an injustice and second doesn't last, then you're not going to be remembered. It doesn't mean to say you've not done a good speech, it's just it won't become a great one. And conversely, you can speak fairly perfunctory way, but if it's about a major issue, you've got every chance. Mm. I mean, Fidel Castro, Nelson Mandela actually in his court a hearing in Rivonia, quite a lot of that. It's four hours long, quite a lot of it's boring. But then there's this incredible section at the end where he ends by saying, this is an ideal for which I hope to live, and but if needs be, it's an ideal for which I'm prepared to die. Now, you can't say that if you're on second after lunch at the local government chronicle. Um, <laughs> you've got to be, you've got to respect your audience. Yeah. You've got to be what Cicero calls it, being decorous, meaning being appropriate. And so it's the occasion which matters more than anything else. Mm. And so I have a, a Reagan speech in the book, not a Clinton speech, because Reagan had the Cold War. And he goes to the Brandon McGate and he says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Now, Clinton did a Cold War speech later in, in Berlin, and it's a very good speech, extremely well-crafted and professional, but it doesn't have the same moment in the mm. historical record. So that's what I discovered, the things that really count not necessarily the ones I remember, but the ones which express an injustice and do something about it. So what was interesting, actually, the, um, I went and reported a Scottish Labour conference when uh, Corbyn spoke there for the first time as leader. And he used an entire section of the Sunshine of Socialism speech, which I did wonder, because it hadn't previously been available online, no, whether you're that... to blame. But... <laughs> yeah, and, and, that. and I think the reason that he used it was simply because it had the word socialism in it, and obviously Keir Hoddy's, you know, Scottish Labour links, and that he wanted to make the point that we're talking about socialism again. But it... it, it... Yeah, a perfectly reasonable thing to do. I mean, I, I could quite imagine doing exactly mm. that. I mean, la the Labour politicians often quote their own heritage, and, and why not? Yeah. You can often pepper a speech with references to Nye Bevan and, and your audience is immediately on site. I've done plenty of that myself. How do you think it was a problem with Tony Blair was that he didn't situate himself enough in Labour history? It was, was both, yes. It was both. He wasn't a Gateskillite because Gateskill was anti-European in that sense. And that's actually in many ways where, and of course, Crossland never became leader. So in that sense, drawing from him, he wasn't a tradition in that sense as much as he was a kind of narrator of its time. I think that's that's right. I mean, Roy Jenkins famously said of Blair that he climbed up the building from the outside. He didn't ever root himself within that tradition. That was both his strength and his weakness, mm. because, of course, Blair came to prominence in the Labour Party by precisely saying, we're not the same as we were. We are new Labour. But that becomes a weakness. I mean, inevitably, anything which is designated as new starts to fade because it isn't new after a while. And there were various attempts were made to try and reintegrate Blair into the Labour tradition, but not, not particularly persuasively because he, it never tripped off his lips. 
that sort of stuff. It didn't sound authentic. And then that's something you, when you're writing, you, you know straight away whether something that you've written works for this person or not. And you, an audience can tell, they can sniff it. It would have been perfectly reasonable for Gordon Brown to say that stuff. That mm. seemed more natural for him. And indeed, he did often do it. But Blair, it slightly ran against his dominant ethos, which was to be the person who brought the Labour Party to the country, not the person who was of the Labour Party. There was a wonderful bit in his last speech, which I imagine you wrote for him, where he said, people say, I hate this party, I hate its traditions. I don't. The only tradition I hate is losing. And I think it was just too late for him to kind of, for that to really land with, with the party membership at that that's, point. But that's, yeah, it I was mean, really remarkable. The, la- the last speech generally is quite late on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it was late on in the speech as well. That, was, that, that, yeah, and that I yeah. remember that very vividly because that section that you've just quoted, in the first drafts of that speech were right at the beginning of the speech. Right. I remember thinking that you have to earn that kind of thing within the one speech. You can't start there because, firstly, if it was Neil Kinnock saying that, there'd be no question, of course he, he thinks that, and it wouldn't seem a remarkable thing. Whereas for Blair, it needed to be the conclusion of a speech. Um, if you'd said that up front, you'd have thought, oh, this is just your last speech. You're currying favor. You're doing a Clinton, Arkansas CLP honors. So we moved that from the beginning to the end. You also had at the worked. beginning of that, and I think Connor, you told Connor this story before, you had a local difficulty to deal with in that speech <laughs> right at the beginning about I did. Yeah, Cherie's my... comments about Gordon. Oh, this is in the book, isn't it? Yeah. It is my famous Les Dawson moment. Um, <laughs> the, the, my, without doubt, the only thing I'm ever remembered for as a speechwriter was, uh, <laughs> was a joke. Because as you say, the previous day, Cherie Blair had said something a bit disobliging about Gordon Brown. It had been overheard by a reporter. And I know that sounds incredibly trivial now, but it was all over the evening news. It, it obliterated the coverage of Gordon's speeches in some of the papers. And not surprisingly, he was annoyed about it. So Tony spoke the next day. We realized we had to deal with this one way or another. And I thought the best way to do that is to, is a joke. But we couldn't think of a joke. So I, and then I started working on it thinking, well, it's got the elements of music hall. It's, it's the guy next door. It's the wife. It's a sort of Arthur Askey, Max Miller, old style, you know, joke so I, I looked up i had a book with me full of old gags and i found this les dawson joke which was uh, my wife's just run off with the guy next door and do you know what i'm really gonna miss him and <laughs> we thought that's a bit vulgar for the prime minister and also not true because we we wouldn't have missed him we definitely chose we wouldn't have missed him at all so we, we customized it and he ended up saying at least she won't run off with the guy next door which actually brought the house down and there's an interesting point about that, which and is made that, Gordon laugh. I seem to remember. Yeah, I mean, slightly through gritted teeth, but um, but yeah, it dealt with the issue, and it dealt with it by conceding the fact. So by telling the yeah. joke, you are essentially admitting, yes, she did say it, and we're sort of sorry. You, you're not denying it, and the mm. joke allows you to do that. It allows you to say, get things said, and whilst everyone's guard is down, they're laughing. They didn't notice that we were saying, "Yep, yeah, that happened." Now let's forget about it. Can I ask how you became? Tony Blair's speechwriter because that you started in 2005 I think but no one had done that for him before nearly you know that was the 11th year of his leadership yeah no one had had that job title as such and no one had insisted on it I, I don't quite know why I decided to insist on that title I was advised by David Miliband actually very cleverly that I needed to have a job that Downing Street is full of people trying to get the ear of the Prime Minister and that's how you measure your currency, is how mm. often are you in meetings. And therefore, it's important not to have a general job, which means you can be excluded from everything, <laughs> but to have a specific job. And I th- suddenly thought that the thing that I could do better than the others was writing. 
you know, I could do other things perfectly well, but I wouldn't say I was the best at any of the others. But I thought, actually, I do write better than they do. I frame arguments better than they do. That's the thing that I can do where I'd be the most use. And so I insisted that I have that title. And quite a few people thought that was a silly thing to do because I said, well, Tony writes a lot of his own speeches. It's a really thankless task and nobody wants to do it. I said, but that's precisely why I want to do it. (laughs) And it was a fantastic decision because it meant I had a particular thing that no one else did. It meant I was involved in everything because you need to hear the rhythm of how he's talking, what he's talking about stuff. And nobody wanted to do my job. So I loved it. I loved every second of it. It was a a great thing to do. But it was a collection of accidents, really. I mean, I had written many other types of thing. But the first proper speech I ever wrote was for Tony Blair. So I'd never really written speeches before. I'd worked for Frank Field, and Mm -hmm. I'm sure back in the distant past, I would have written something which he said out loud, perhaps, (laughs) about the politics of the Church of England or something. But (laughs) I I wasn't a speechwriter as such. I was someone who was interested in political arguments, had worked in think tanks and things and had written plays and novels so i thought of myself as a writer and interested in politics and it just the two things just came together quickly one more question about the past because we're going to talk about the future hopefully after that we spoke a bit at the beginning about neil kinnock's speeches and in that 1985 speech in bournemouth he kind of begins it by setting the context of who he is delivering that speech to. He says, I speak to you to this conference. People say that leaders speak to the television cameras. All right, we have some eavesdroppers. But my belief has always been this, and I act upon it, and I will always act upon it. I come to this conference primarily, above all, to speak to this movement at its conference. And that really kind of sets the tone for that speech of like, this is not about the people outside. They really are just on the outside looking in. The argument I'm about to have is with the people in this room. I think that's a really interesting way of kind of trying to command the context, because I remember again on the day after the 2015 general election, watching Ed Miliband's resignation speech on television, I thought it had landed really badly and it made me furious and I'd not been angry all night. And at that moment I was. And then I spoke to um, Mark Ferguson, then my editor at Labourlist, immediately afterwards, he'd been in the room and he was literally with tears in his eyes saying that was a kind of beautiful speech. There wasn't a dry out in the house. And obviously most of the other people in that room had been working for Ed Miliband. So there were other reasons for that. But um, it was so interesting how different that context had played out. And I just wonder, you know, did Kinnick manage to kind of control the context? And, and can good speakers do that? It's a very interesting question. I now analyze speeches of the Times and I make a rule of never going into the hall for them. So I haven't been in to watch a speech for years because I think you you can get swept away, mm. even with a Ed Miliband resignation speech. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was sat at home cheering. Um, but you can. It's an emotional event, the connection between a speaker and an audience. And so you can get lost in that, and you, you don't judge it the same. The usual rule for a conference speech will be to speak outwards to the nation, not just inwards to the party. But in Kinnock's case, his message was to the party, and that was... Cleverly, he's doing both at once because the nation already knows that the Labour Party has a problem. So Kinnock is addressing that very directly. So although it appears he's only going inward, mm-hmm. he's in fact cleverly going outward at the same time. And he's doing what he needed to do. And it, it was cleverly controlled. In the speeches I wrote for my era, we had the two audiences, the party in, and the people in the hall. And you have to remember, they are actually there. You know, you do have to pay them the courtesy <laughs> of talking to them. You know, yeah. It's not enough to ignore them because partly you feed off an audience as a speaker 
these you days, want the clap lines. You, you need do. their kind of feedback and their sense of... You do. It's, yes, it helps Approval a lot. as you go through almost. Yes, you do. Their permission. And, and also, you, you, know, you shouldn't be writing a speech in which your audience thinks is awful. <laughs> I yeah. mean, you, you, you want it for that reason too. But these days, I mean, since I stopped writing speeches, there's an, an even more fragmented audience as well because, I mean, we, we just had television and we were looking to get those six lines on the, on the TV and you think hard about which lines you want to be the thing, and that's a much maligned soundbite. But actually, it's just the, the wittiest possible way of encapsulating your idea. These days, of course, your what you say is going to be chunked up into tiny little fragments and disseminated all around the world within seconds on various social media, a process over which you have absolutely no control at all. So it's got harder and harder, and the, the audience, as it's got bigger, once upon a time, it's just the people in the hall, and now it's potentially millions of people in seconds. Um, it's got harder to ensure that you land the message. You, the truth is you don't know. Right. I think that's something that we'll uh, pick up a bit more on in the next section when we'll be talking about whether the demise of oratory has a role in the rise of populism. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm June Sarpong, and if you like the Progressive Britain podcast, then we ask you to subscribe, rate, or review it on iTunes, because that's how we reach a larger audience. And that's what progressive politics is all about. In When They Go Low, We Go High, you write, one of the flaws of liberal democracies is that when they succeed, they start to sound boring. Power has a tendency to corrupt language, not because politicians are venal, but because success turns a campaigner into a technocrat. This feels like a new way of saying campaign in poetry, govern in prose. Is part of the problem for British social democracy now that the unparalleled success of the 1990s has for the first time led to a generation of the centre-left that's inspired by technocrats rather than campaigners? Yes, to some extent that's true of this particular context, but I think it's more true more generally too. I think that there's a longer-term structural reason for what we think of as the decline of oratory, and that's because we live in nicer countries than we used to. Mm-hmm. If you're in 1860 and you're doing a speech about the slum clearances and about um, sanitation, 
and uh, epidemics and contagious disease. Disraeli goes to the Free Trade Hall in Manchester in 1872 and he, he delivers a One Nation Conservatism speech all about that. And unfortunately, he's got an awful lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have the same kind of material now. Mm. If, you do, if you do a public health speech now, and I've written them, they are more technocratic because the things are more difficult. They're not, strictly speaking, public health questions because they're not contagious. So it's harder. The other problem you've got these days is you haven't got the same executive authority over problems. So why, for example, has nobody yet done the world's great climate change speech? I think the reason for that is that nobody has got the power to fix it. So Disraeli stands up and he talks about building infrastructure and the sewers. And you think, yes, you can do that because you're prime minister. So with the tax collection and government use of judicious use of state power, we can fix this problem. And that gives the rhetoric a real sting. If you stand up and deliver a speech about climate change, everybody knows, listening, that even if you're the environment secretary of a reasonably sized nation, there's not a lot you can do if China's not going to join in, or if India isn't, or if America isn't. So that sense of authority, which the speech requires in order to really be remembered, is, is lacking. So for partly for the reasons of the world getting better, and partly for the, for the reasons of power spreading, I think it's harder to do those sorts of great speeches than it used to be. It's not that politicians are worse or that everyone's stupid or that no one's doing anything good. I I think those are all accusations you hear a lot, but I I try and defend politicians against those accusations because I don't think that's true. Mm. You know, I don't think it's... I think it's lazy to just assume, oh, our politicians today are rubbish and in the once upon a time they were marvellous. That's not true. You know, there there will be some who are rubbish, but there are always plenty who are rubbish. We only remember the good ones, of course. I mean, the ones in the anthologies are, are those who were, who were good, and even some of those were rubbish for most of their career. Look at Churchill, terrible speaker for most of his career because he was doing the same thing over and over again. I found this lovely example. of Churchill went to a by-election in Oldham in 1899. He's 24 years of old age, and he's, he's a liberal candidate. And he stands up in a room in Oldham with about five people gathering around, and he says, um, never before in the history of Oldham, have so many people had so little to eat and it's just rubbish (laughs) and he uses that same locution over and over again he does it in africa he's standing around a hole in the ground and he says never before in the history of africa has so much water been held up by so little masonry you think what are you doing this material just isn't worth your lavish um, wordplay and then all of a sudden he gets the war and takes wing never before in the field of human conflict it's just fabulous and it's the moment he's got it's not that he's got he's any better than anyone else so he's he's found the moment and so i think we need to be a bit careful with uh, with denigrating our politicians because mm. that's the one step away from denigrating our politics and the main message of my whole book is we should, we must not denigrate our politics because what else is there mm. you know that this the words are the means we carry arguments and in a democracy Words are what counts. And the, the, the tradition of rhetoric begins with Pericles standing up delivering the funeral oration in Athens mm. in 431 BC. And the reason he has to do it is because it's a democracy. And suddenly he has to persuade people. You don't need to persuade anybody else in other forms of, of government. So if we start to denigrate that and say it's all decline, it's all terrible, I think we're doing, we're doing to ourselves a real disservice. There are enough threats to democracy around the place as it is without us joining in. I think that's true. I, I was asked on the radio when I was very young. I was on the Jeremy Vine show. And I said to him, he said, oh, you sound like a politician. I was like, I don't think that's an insult. The alternative is apathy or terrorism. So politics is a high art and we've got to get people doing it. And it's a kind of 
bizarre thing that everyone just joins in. And what's worse is politicians join in on anti-politics stuff. And that's when you know they're a real... They're a charlatan, basically, it seems to me. I agree. We, we have to defend good politics. There's good and bad politics, like there's good and bad everything. But um, argument is, is good, and also so is compromise. So is changing your mind. So is thinking, oh, actually, on balance, you've probably got a point there. That, I mean, we always describe that as weakness, and it's not. That, that's that's mm. an intelligent thing to do. And all the speeches in the book are all moments in which somebody summoned incredibly eloquent words to say something important. Yeah, one of my friends, I think he's very impressive. I often say to... One of the reasons why I think he's impressive is he knows what he thinks, therefore you can change his mind. Because he kind of has a yardstick by which he judges everything. And if it's wrong, you can actually explain to him that it's wrong. And if you're cleverer than him and have got a better argument, you can change his mind. And often I'm not cleverer than him and or got a better argument. But I just think to watch that at play is really important. Well, Cicero has a word for it. It's concessio. It's a rhetorical term meaning the point in the speech where you concede that something has to change, where you mm. may have been wrong. And good speakers always do that, and bad speakers always refrain from doing it. A lot of political rhetoric today contains no concession at all. It's usually sort of vicious and, and rather caricature of the opposition, and it never works. I mean, Gordon Brown used to do that all the time. And you just, you know, the, if you say the Tories are deliberately starving public services of resources because they hate poor people and they want them to starve you've lost everybody and all those people who voted conservative a couple of years ago think well that's not me mm. i don't think that whereas if you say in a, the, the upshot of a thought process which is failing the, of the conservative party is that there are services starved resources and people are suffering then as a former conservative voter you might think ah that could be me there is a cicero quote I would much prefer good sense expressed uneloquently than loquacious folly. And that's the English translation. I've always wondered whether um, uneloquently is a purposefully bad translation. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite eloquent in its own way, isn't it? In in context. What's interesting about what you just said is that populists, however, seem to have come about and their currency is that I was right when it was unpopular to be right and I'm still right about it today. And that's almost juxtaposed to what you just said is that they're they're you know Jeremy Corbyn and the reason why he has currency and why some people say yes he's a bad principle I don't agree with his principles but I respect that he is principled is because he believed these things when they're unpopular and now he's pleased that they're popular now but he believes them regardless that's true and populism properly expressed is really the opposite of politics because that the what the populist does ultimately is to say that I know the will of the people so the will of the people is expressed through me, the populist. And, and Trump does this. And the, mm. the cult of Jeremy Corbyn is doing this to some extent as well, which is that there's no need for this intermediary argument. Actually, I am the expression of this argument. And that explains why, no matter how many times the it, it is attempted to pin on Jeremy Corbyn things that he actually thinks, <laughs> like his long history of his views towards the Soviet Union, a lot of his supporters just aren't interested because they've decided that he is a populist expression of who they are. And for a while that lasts, but it can't last forever. So populism has a, is perishable. You cannot, it won't survive very long in, in government. You know, it's not surviving for Donald Trump, because you find that the world has this, a way of barging in and imposing itself upon you, and you're forced to make real decisions and answer real questions. So if Jeremy Corbyn were ever to get into government, he would find that too, and his... He found it already, in fact. If you go back to the last election campaign, the Jeremy Corbyn who spoke on security after the London Bridge bombing 
and after Manchester was a very different kind of Jeremy Corbyn mm. than the one who'd spoken before. To my mind, a better one, actually. I thought he, mm. he, what he did was quite right, the right thing to do. But it demonstrates that you have to shift. And I think he would have to continue shifting. So you, you can't just strike a pose and stay the same forever unless you are, you've hit a major injustice, in which case it is a mark of virtue to do so. And quite a few of my examples, Martin Luther King being the obvious one, mm. he was saying the same thing throughout his career. Of course he was, because it's racial justice in America. And that's not, that's not the kind of bedrock question on which you can compromise. So for and those sorts reasons, of things... He never got to see his vision. He never got to see a black president, for example. And no. Whether he'd be, and as an eloquent, you know, introducing Obama some years later, is unclear because... He had an occasion of which he could speak to he better did. than anyone else. But Ab- Obama really. then is a very interesting example because I do think he's a culmination of that argument that uh, Martin Luther King really carries forward. But Obama it was, I, th- I think, a, a, a brilliant speaker and revived the, ver- the idea of oratory in our time. What Obama used to do was fascinating because he is the classic instance of the person who campaigns in poetry but then governs, not even in prose. It's more like you know, the, the telephone <laughs> in directory. In thesis, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because he became, once again, the law professor when he mm. went into government. He was very deliberate about that. He realized he had incredible eloquence and he could bring people over with his the flights of fancy he could paint. But then when he was president, his inaugural addresses were deliberately prosaic because he was saying, in effect, through the style... I have won this on a tide of elevated rhetoric, but I'm really serious. I'm not just the guy who can paint nice pictures. I'm also a a governor. I'm someone who's going to do things. I'm going to get stuff done. So his speeches were deliberately technocratic, and he chose technocratic language as a way of counteracting his previous poetry, which is a very interesting choice. Isn't there one of the problems that came from that is that nobody followed Obama? One, that he was so good that it felt that everybody fell short because of it, but also in government, he didn't have a programme that essentially Democrats could come with. Because I remember Douglas Alexander saying this to me, is that the thing about Obama was he could get the right people in the room and whatever the proposal was, at the last minute he could make it 10% more progressive. But if you're a Democrat senator or standing to be governor of a state, you can't stand on a ticket with a guy going, if our man's in, don't worry, when it comes to the final bit, it'll be that bit better. And so you saw this dearth of talent behind it. There was just... No state houses, not enough people who could stand, which is why the Democrats had, I do think, a brilliant candidate. I am a big fan of Hillary Clinton, but clearly, for whatever reason, fell short. And the fact that she didn't have enough people vying and and it ended up being Bernie Sanders that was the the race she was in, I think is partly down to Obama and then that change in style. Also, there there was no hope in Hillary Clinton's campaign, was there? There was no no style, there was no uplift, there was no poetry. I'm a fan of hers too, and I... I think she was a very good Secretary of State, but for a populist age, absolutely the wrong candidate. The Democrats had very little to say. They just, I mean, Trump was very interesting in the campaign because we know Trump as, as this kind of bizarre public speaker, but actually his stump speeches were much more disciplined than that. He had a very clear message. And so when he was going to Ohio or Wisconsin, he had a set of things that he hit every time. And he was quite disciplined about it. All blue collar stuff and all hopeless fantastic promises of of protectionism and and all the rest of it but nevertheless he knew the audience he was speaking directly to them and he embodied the sense that he was going to do something whereas hillary clinton went and in one sense was more honest with people Mm. and told them in a way she she tried to say she felt their pain but every part of her said however 
-hmm. the the rules of economics say that you are going to suffer. <laughs> and people heard that as much as they heard the expression of sympathy. With Trump, it was all emotion, but it was disciplined. It was well done. Do you think Trump is an orator? Everyone who stands up and speaks on in public is an orator of one kind or another. Um, and he's president of the United States, so you can't even say he's an unsuccessful. Um, but in the sense that I think you meant it, no. And that is, is he someone who will stand the test of time for his speaking style or his ability? His style is certainly unique, and that's worth something. The, all of the speakers that I, I look at have something about them which is just them. You know, everything from Elizabeth I onwards, and he, he certainly has that. And he has some messages, but he's too loose most of the time to be a really good orator and ultimately i think too although i do have a few villains in the book i mean proper serious villains historical world class villains like robespierre and uh, and hitler and stalin and chairman mao and i don't class trump in that category at all but i do think the speeches which last are those which tell a story about ourselves which is progressive and good and um I don't really expect Donald Trump to be making such a speech anytime soon. It's a shame that um, Alison McGovern isn't with us today. She usually is because um, actually public speaking is something that she has a real passion for. And um, what she always kind of says when, when she's thinking about giving a speech and what should be in it is that she was taught at a young age that there is nothing more valuable to someone else than their time. And when you're giving a speech, essentially the first question you ask of them is to give me your time. And the idea of then wasting that on something that is bland or that they already know or that is boring is a real insult. And she really feels that very yeah. strongly. Or that you put no time into. That's the yeah. problem with lots of our politicians. They don't put the time into writing a speech that they then demand time of their audience to listen to. Or even that you might say something that they don't understand. And so I think there's a Hemingway quote in the book. I can't remember who his critic is, but who you know essentially says that Hemingway never uses big words. He says he thinks that, I don't know the big words. I just choose not to use them. I think that is, is a real kind of uh, interesting point. Yeah, it, it is. Most really effective rhetoric is not words that pe are long, elaborate, flowery language. It's not that. It's the putting together of ordinary words in a lovely way. If you read an Obama speech, and it's very plain. Mm. There, there, are very, there are no words in there you won't, you'll have to look up. But the way he puts them together is, is very rhythmic and musical. The same is true to a slightly lesser extent of Martin Luther King, because Martin Luther King borrows a lot from the Bible, which is more self-consciously literary style. But still, there's no words in there that you wouldn't understand. And the way he links them all together is the thing that makes it rhetorical. And uh, I, I think Alison McGovern is absolutely right about time. I think that's a really important point that the people in that audience, however you define your audience, have chosen to spend 25 minutes, 30 minutes with you. The least you can do is try and be interesting. Can I ask you about Corbyn's use of Percy Bysshe Shelley's Mask of Anarchy poem in his speeches? You often hear him use it at rallies now. It's, it's you know, where the, for the many, not the few, comes from the last few lines, the like lions from their slumber. Kind of using a 200-year-old poem at a music festival like Glastonbury to cheers of tens of thousands of people seems like a, you know, quite a radical step in, in modern oratory. Like, what do you make of it? I like that a lot, actually. And there's a couple of things about that. Quote. I mean, firstly, the, the actual phrase itself, the many, not the few, goes back even further. Pericles uses it in the funeral oration. Oh, really? So it's right there, right at the beginning. So um, someone once said to me, oh, what, what do you think of Jeremy Corbyn using Tony Blair's line? Many, not the few? <laughs> I said, well, I'd like to cream credit for that, <laughs> but it goes back a bit further. But then, then Shelley did use it in the, the poem he wrote after Peterloo. 
Um, the yeah, the Mask yeah. of Anarchy was written uh, as a commemoration of the Peterloo Massacre of 1819. Because that's why I think it gets its its level of strength in the left-wing British movement. It's always existed in, in that sense. That's right. I mean, I like to remind the Corbyn fans that actually that is a, a, a sort of hymn to radical liberalism and, uh, and the, the pursuit of free trade in Manchester, uh, not a cause they tend to be associated with, mm. and also parliamentary representation. And, and Shelley wrote it from the safety of Italy three months later, so he wasn't exactly um, in there in the fight. But it's a, it's a very fine poem that commemorates a quest for freedom both economic and political freedom and to that extent it's part of a tradition and a heritage and i i have no problem at all with politicians living in their heritage and, and citing it i think i'd like them to do it more often it doesn't happen so much now you go back to the 19th century and politicians were quoting shakespeare all the time tennyson etc churchill used to do it but he was thought to be archaic even at the time and the reason it's fallen out of use i think is probably because the mid 19th century audience was pretty much all educated to the mm. same extent. So you could assume a canon of literary references that everybody would, would get. Yeah. Politicians now think, well, we can't assume that now. We've got a much more diverse educational audience, therefore I won't risk a quotation. And I think that's actually a bit patronising. I think you can just do it and people will enjoy it. I used to try and um, surreptitiously drop lines of Philip Larkin in his Tony Blair speeches. Blair had an absolutely unerring ability to spot a really good line and then take it out. <laughs> anything he said well that's all purple prose by which he meant poetry um and i suppose he was right because that wasn't him mm. but i think there are politicians who can do it if, if you feel that when corbyn cites shelley you think that might be the kind of writer he would read then it's authentic and then it works and i do think it is mm. the kind of writer he, i wish he would read some other writers as well <laughs> but i do think that sounds fine so i i rather like that I always just try and persuade people who work for Gordon Brown to get Brown to quote more because it gives it would have given him a lightness of touch that he didn't otherwise have. And it would have seemed authentic because he thought, I completely accept that Gordon Brown is a sort of person who would read that kind of book and therefore I don't have any problem with this. He's the type of person going on holiday to a library, isn't he? I yeah. mean, that is sometimes they think literally what he did. Well, it was, it was. And, and again, I, I don't, I, also another person who'd like to go on holiday to a library. <laughs> I, I, I've got no problem with that either. So, mm. But whatever the kind of person you are, your rhetoric and your speaking style has to be an extension of that. Because an audience, although they don't know a great deal about you, they, they sense it somehow. So they know when you're trying something which isn't really you. I've made that mistake a few times. I've given lines to politicians that, well, things I might say, but not things they might say, and it never works. Earlier, you kind of talked about social media for a moment and talk about how actually once that message is out there, you then can't control it. And I think looking at the way that technology affects oratories is really interesting. And Jeremy Corbyn, I think in a, in a traditional sense, possibly isn't a great orator. Often his speeches are quite flabby. They have lots of bits that don't really mean anything. Often they kind of don't join together quite well. But actually what his team has done quite well is use his mode of oratory and use new technology in a really clever way so now actually they will clip a little bit from prime minister's questions or a rally or something maybe just two minutes long maybe even shorter and put it on facebook or whatever and then target it very specifically in a way he's choosing exactly his audience and they are choosing exactly the message that they want to hear in a sense is that actually a measure of a very good modern orator yes it is because that's the extent to which it's changing the dissemination has changed and we can reach more people quickly and 
it was never been the case that most people would sit down to the whole speech. In once upon a time, we didn't have the technology to be able to do that, so it couldn't happen anyway. Even you go back to the Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln spoke so quietly that most of the people who were actually there couldn't hear it, let alone anybody else. He used to employ people to go walk around the audience and whisper to them what he was saying up there on the stage. So getting your your message out has always been very difficult. Of course, you then have it covered in the newspapers, but then even speeches like that weren't always covered to a great extent. So the capacity of people to broadcast what they say now is much, much bigger. And that power has passed in this respect, as in every other, from the gatekeepers in the broadcasting environment to the supporters. So we've, we're, we're living through a major change in the capacity of political people to get their partisan message out usually to an assembled group of their own supporters who already think it anyway, who are apt to think that what Mr. Corbyn says is good. But that it's open for everybody else to do that too. So it's not as though they're doing anything untoward. Mm-hmm. That technology exists for everybody else, and they're using it in the most sophisticated way. I think another thing, I want to add a, a, sort of a little bit of praise for Jeremy Corbyn as a speaker too, because I think that there's not a great deal of hope and elevation in British politics at the moment. And there are some structural reasons for that, which I've, I've talked about. But that's not that's not to say it's a council of despair. You can attach hope to what you think, and you must. And one of the things I keep coming back to in the book is a slightly deliberately naive call for uplift and elevation and a sense of possibility. And remarkably to me, Jeremy Corbyn is the person in British politics who has that currency at the moment. It attaches to him. And anybody else who wants to wrestle back control of politics from him needs to get hold of it and they need to find a way of speaking which which inspires people because to the extent there's any inspiration in politics at the moment jeremy corbyn is the person who is doing it and when he stands in front of an audience at glastonbury he's getting an, an ovation now, it doesn't come through the power of he's not demosthenes and it's not incredibly forensic argument but nevertheless that is a spectacle that is a theatrical moment and he is in that sense an, an orator and a successful one I wonder if some of this kind of relates to how believable people th- think your analysis of problems are. So, we, you know, you look at Kennedy speeches and, and obviously there was um, in the Times a couple of weeks ago that uh, Kennedy speech that new technology has, has brought to life, the speech that he was supposed to be giving in Dallas on the day that he was shot. But if you look at his other speeches, actually... He's about facing up to incredibly big problems. The, his New Frontier speech when he accepts the uh, Democratic candidacy is, is my personal favourite of his. But essentially, he's talking about communism and the Cold War. And people in America really believed the size of the problem. And possibly part of the issue for us on the centre-left today is that when we try and talk in, in big ways about the scale of the problems that we face, whether it's automation or whether it's Brexit or, you know, whether it's the left or the right or populism, whatever, it's actually possibly the majority of people don't believe where we're starting from. And so this kind of like high man need rhetoric, even if we were able to capture it well, which possibly a lot of us cannot, wouldn't really land anyway. Yeah, I think there's some truth in that, that the the issues that Kennedy is talking about are, are enormous, and they were felt to be enormous at the time. I mean, enormous brought us to the brink of nuclear annihilation, no, no less. So it's um, a few months later, he's making a speech about nuclear war that you, you're probably going to listen. But Kennedy, and uh, to some extent also his brother, is, a I think, always a, a problematic example for people on the left to fall in love with, partly because their careers were cut short. So they never went through the usual political process of wear and tear. They never went on the down cycle. 
So they're, they're suspended you know, forever in the, on, in the good bit. I mean, in his short career, John F. Kennedy made plenty of mistakes. And his 1961 inaugural, the famous, ask not what your country can do for you, but mm. what you can do for your country, is a, a is an attempt to win back the credentials as a leader that he felt he'd lost over the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so he was always struggling to, to win back that uh, sense of being in control. But it's very easy to think of that time as frozen, suspended, because he's he's shot and there's never any aftermath. There's, I mean, would Kennedy have taken America into Vietnam? How would his reputation be today if he'd lived? Well, we've, we'll never know. So he is, in a sense, a misleading political figure. And that's why he's tempting to use all the time, because he doesn't have the full mm. uh, course of a political life. I am very skeptical of labor people, and there's loads of them, who are obsessed by American politics. Uh, and obsessed by American rhetoric. Although I've got lots of it in the book, and it's mm. really crucial, I think the application of that rhetoric and that politics to Britain is much less than most people think it is. I've lost count of the number of Labour politicians who can recite Bobby Kennedy speeches, but none of them have ever heard of anything David Lloyd George said. And that strikes me as a bit peculiar and, and slightly lacking in confidence. We have to look to the shinier bigger, better land of America for all our rhetorical inspiration, even though it has precious little to say to us. Finally, I just want to ask you about, you once wrote an acceptance speech for a new Labour Party leader that uh, I believe never <laughs> was never made. The David Miliband speech that was never that given. That day will it. come. <laughs> <laughs> In 2010. But uh, I think that speech focused largely on how the war on drugs had failed, which um, seems like the opposite of populism, really. It did have a long section on, on the war of drug, on drugs, yes, and it was obviously deliberately chosen. There were two things in that speech which David would have delivered had he won. One was to try and reframe the question of Labour's economic policy, which Labour suffered from so badly subsequently under his brother Ed. And that was the, the first thing the speech was to do, was to change the argument, to say, to, to concede to say, yes, we know we overspent a little bit. However, that's a very small proportion of the problem we now confront, which was in large part created by an international crisis. And Alison con- Darling was going to do a big review for it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so by conceding that little bit, we felt that we'd gained permission to be back in the argument. That was the first purpose. And, th- and then the second one was to try and counteract in some way the idea that David Miliband was just a technocrat and just someone who would do only the obvious and the popular thing. Uh, which was a charge against him, and I think helped to ensure that he didn't win in the end. And so to take on a major social problem, which we recognised was a real thing but wasn't being talked about in politics, was was David's way of, of saying we know that in, to some extent politics hasn't entirely succeeded. David was, if you remember, the continuity candidate. He was the new Labour candidate, the one that came out of the Blair stable. He had to do something to say, no, I've got my own thoughts, my own politics and my own concerns and this is something that the government of which i'm a part really didn't address so that was the the thinking behind it it was a good speech i was very pleased with it it was well thought through we spent a long time working it through and uh it had quite a lot to say most of it is dated obviously i mean one of the interesting things about most speeches is that you look back at them five years later and almost all of the concerns in them have really disappeared (laughs) and it's incredibly irritating when people think that anybody wants to go back to the Blair years, for example. Mm. What, what a preposterous suggestion. The idea that you'd want to revisit the issues of 2007 or something. I mean, they're, <laughs> just, they're just 
profoundly irrelevant. And the, mm. I've had to edit all the speeches I've used in the book for contemporary references because some of them really date them and readers won't know what, what they're talking about. I've had to fill in sometimes, obviously, to explain the context. But I've tried to find the words which have lasted and most words don't last. Most well, words you say are that the two bits are those bits in David's speech. You know, ultimately, Ed could never deal with that economic uh, legacy issue, which meant that we lost the 2015 uh, election. And it felt that Corbyn had kind of blew up the question in 2017, which therefore got him through. But I think that issue will come back in 2021-22, particularly if it looks like Labour, A, can win, and two, its only plan is to borrow money to pay for its various programmes. And secondly, drugs hasn't been dealt with as an issue and arguably is a bigger concern today and one that politics has no sense of getting a handle on. And while we're talking about the issues of whether we're in the 1950s or the 1970s, nobody's talking about the Mm. fact that this is this huge issue that... It's not just coming down the track. It seems to be hitting us every day, but it's just in that box of politics that is too tough to, to tackle. No, you're right, Richard. Those two things still do still exist. And the next time there's an election for the leader of the Labour Party, there's a speech there waiting to be <laughs> delivered by the successful candidate. And I, you know, I, I, I own the copyright to this, and for a very small emolument, I'm prepared to, uh, to pass it over. I think Ed Miliband's team shared it with the internet for you, so that you... I uh, think they did. I, that you, I don't think you have the... <laughs> I don't think you can do that anymore. No, well, if it's out there and, and ready to be used, I look forward to the day that somebody reads it out. <laughs> Thank you, Philip, for coming in and joining us today. You're welcome. Next up, we've got the political pub quiz. Every week, Connor asks a political pub quiz question. This week, I've decided to base my question around John F. Kennedy, because obviously that would annoy Philip Collins the most. (laughs) Um, So the the question that we've got is, what common household item did JFK always travel with? I don't know, but if you know the answer, send it to office at progressonline.org.uk, tweet at at Connor Pope or at Progress Online, or send us a message through Facebook or any other medium you wish and make sure you put in your name and address. So if you get it right, you get a mug in the post. If you haven't rated this podcast, please do. If you haven't reviewed this podcast, please do. If you haven't subscribed, make sure you do, so you get every edition. And not only do you get to hear it, but it's the best way of getting this podcast to the people who don't yet listen to it. Thank you for your time. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton who produced this podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.